Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 24 Henry and Agnes were left alone in the room of the Caratides. The person who had written the description of the palace, probably a poor author or artist, had correctly pointed out the defects of the mantelpiece. Bad taste, exhibiting itself on the most costly and splendid scale, was visible in every part of the work. It was, nevertheless, greatly admired by ignorant travelers of all classes, partly on account of its imposing size, and partly on account of the number of variously colored marbles which the sculptor had contrived to introduce into his design. Photographs of the mantelpiece were exhibited in the public rooms, and found a ready sale among English and American visitors to the hotel. Henry led Agnes to the figure on the left as they stood facing the empty fireplace. "'Shall I try the experiment?' he asked, "'or will you?' She abruptly drew her arm away from him and turned back to the door. "'I can't even look at it,' she said. "'That merciless marble face frightens me.' Henry put his hand on the forehead of the figure. "'What is there to alarm you, my dear, "'in this conventionally classical face?' "'he asked, jestingly. "'Before he could press the head inwards, "'Agnes hurriedly opened the door. "'Wait till I'm out of the room,' she cried. "'The bare idea of what you may find there horrifies me.' "'She looked back into the room as she crossed the threshold. "'I won't leave you altogether,' she said. "'I will wait outside.' "'She closed the door.' Left by himself, Henry lifted his hand once more to the marble forehead of the figure. For the second time, he was checked on the point of setting the machinery of the hiding place in motion. On this occasion, the interruption came from an outbreak of friendly voices in the corridor. A woman's voice exclaimed, "'Dearest Agnes, how glad I am to see you again!' A man's voice followed, offering to introduce some friend to Miss Lockwood." A third voice, which Henry recognized as the voice of the manager of the hotel, became audible next, directing the housekeeper to show the ladies and gentlemen the vacant apartments at the other end of the corridor. "'If more accommodation is wanted,' the manager went on, "'I have a charming room to let here.' He opened the door as he spoke and found himself face to face with Henry Westwick. "'This is indeed an agreeable surprise, sir,' said the manager, cheerfully. "'You are admiring our famous chimney-piece, I see. "'May I ask, Mr. Westwick, how you find yourself in the hotel this time? "'Have the supernatural influences affected your appetite again?' "'The supernatural influences have spared me this time,' Henry answered. "'Perhaps you may yet find that they have affected some other member of the family.' "'He spoke gravely,' 
resenting the familiar tone in which the manager had referred to his previous visit to the hotel. "'Have you just returned?' he asked, by way of changing the topic. "'Just this minute, sir. I had the honor of traveling in the same train with friends of yours who have arrived at the hotel, Mr. and Mrs. Arthur Barville and their traveling companions. Miss Lockwood is with them, looking at the rooms.' They will be here before long, if they find it convenient to have an extra room at their disposal. This announcement decided Henry on exploring the hiding place before the interruption occurred. It had crossed his mind, when Agnes left him, that he ought, perhaps, to have a witness in the not very probable event of some alarming discovery taking place. The too-familiar manager, suspecting nothing, was there at his disposal, he turned again to the figure, maliciously resolving to make the manager his witness. "'I am delighted to hear that our friends have arrived at last,' he said. "'Before I shake hands with them, let me ask you a question about this queer work of art here. I see photographs of it downstairs. Are they for sale?' "'Certainly, Mr. Westwick.' "'Do you think the chimney-piece is as solid as it looks?' Henry proceeded." When you came in, I was just wondering whether this figure here had not accidentally got loosened from the wall behind it. He laid his hand on the marble forehead for the third time. To my eye, it looks a little out of the perpendicular. I almost fancied I could jog the head just now when I touched it. He pressed the head inwards as he said those words. A sound of jarring iron was instantly audible behind the wall. The solid hearthstone in front of the fireplace turned slowly at the feet of the two men and disclosed a dark cavity below. At the same moment, the strange and sickening combination of odors, hitherto associated with the vaults of the old palace and with the bedchamber beneath, now floated up from the open recess and filled the room. The manager started back. "'Good God, Mr. Westwick!' he exclaimed. "'What does this mean?' Remembering not only what his brother Francis had felt in the room beneath, but what the experience of Agnes had been on the previous night, Henry was determined to be on his guard. "'I am as much surprised as you are,' was his only reply. "'Wait for me one moment, sir,' said the manager. "'I must stop the ladies and gentlemen outside from coming in.' He hurried away, not forgetting to close the door after him. Henry opened the window and waited there, breathing the purer air. Vague apprehensions of the next discovery to come filled his mind for the first time. He was doubly resolved, now, not to stir a step in the investigation without a witness. The manager returned with a wax taper in his hand, which he lighted as soon as he entered the room. "'We need fear no interruption now,' he said. "'Be so kind, Mr. Westwick, as to hold the light.' It is my business to find out what this extraordinary discovery means. Henry held the taper. Looking into the cavity by the dim and flickering light, they both detected a dark object at the bottom of it. I think I can reach the thing, the manager remarked, if I lie down and put my hand into the hole. He knelt on the floor and hesitated. "'Might I ask you, sir, to give me my gloves?' he said. 
They are in my hat on the chair behind you. Henry gave him the gloves. I don't know what I may be going to take hold of, the manager explained, smiling rather uneasily as he put on his right glove. He stretched himself at full length on the floor and passed his right arm into the cavity. I can't say exactly what I've got hold of, he said, but I have got it. Half raising himself, he drew his hand out. The next instant, he started to his feet with a shriek of terror. A human head dropped from his nerveless grasp on the floor and rolled to Henry's feet. It was the hideous head that Agnes had seen hovering above her in the vision of the night. The two men looked at each other, both struck speechless by the same emotion of horror. The manager was the first to control himself. See to the door, for God's sake, he said. Some of the people outside may have heard me. Henry moved mechanically to the door. Even when he had his hand on the key, ready to turn it in the lock in case of necessity, he still looked back at the appalling object on the floor. There was no possibility of identifying those decayed and distorted features with any living creature whom he had seen. And yet... He was conscious of feeling a vague and awful doubt which shook him to the soul. The questions which had tortured the mind of Agnes were now his questions too. He asked himself, In whose likeness might I have recognized it before the decay set in? The likeness of Ferrari? Or the likeness of... He paused, trembling, as Agnes had paused, trembling before him. Agnes! The name of all women's names, the dearest to him, was a terror to him now. What was he to say to her? What might be the consequence if he trusted her with the terrible truth? No footsteps approached the door. No voices were audible outside. The travelers were still occupied in the rooms at the eastern end of the corridor. In the brief interval that had passed, the manager had sufficiently recovered himself to be able to think once more of the first and foremost interests of his life, the interests of the hotel. He approached Henry anxiously. If this frightful discovery becomes known, he said, the closing of the hotel and the ruin of the company will be the inevitable results. I feel sure that I can trust your discretion, sir, so far. You can certainly trust me, Henry answered, but surely discretion has its limits he added, after such a discovery as we have made. The manager understood that the duty which they owed to the community, as honest and law-abiding men, was the duty to which Henry now referred. I will at once find the means, he said, of conveying the remains privately out of the house, and I will myself place them in the care of the police authorities. Will you leave the room with me, or do not object to keep watch here, and help me when I return. While he was speaking, the voices of the travelers made themselves heard again at the end of the corridor. Henry instantly consented to wait in the room. He shrank from facing the inevitable meeting with Agnes if he showed himself in the corridor at that moment. The manager hastened his departure in the hope of escaping notice. He was discovered by his guests before he could reach the head of the stairs. Henry heard the voices plainly as he turned the key. 
While the terrible drama of discovery was in progress on one side of the door, trivial questions about the amusements of Venice and facetious discussions on the relative merits of French and Italian cookery were proceeding on the other. Little by little, the sound of the talking grew fainter. The visitors, having arranged their plans of amusement for the day, were on their way out of the hotel. In a minute or two, there was silence once more. Henry turned to the window, thinking to relieve his mind by looking at the bright view over the canal. He soon grew wearied of the familiar scene. The morbid fascination, which seems to be exercised by all horrible sights, drew him back again to the ghastly object on the floor. Dream or reality, how had Agnes survived the sight of it? As the questions passed through his mind, he noticed for the first time something lying on the floor near the head. Looking closer, he perceived a thin little plate of gold with three false teeth attached to it, which had apparently dropped out, loosened by the shock, when the manager let the head fall on the floor. The importance of this discovery and the necessity of not too readily communicating it to others instantly struck Henry. Here surely was a chance, if any chance remained, of identifying the shocking relic of humanity which lay before him, the dumb witness of a crime. Acting on this idea, he took possession of the teeth, purposing to use them as a last means of inquiry when other attempts at investigation had been tried and had failed. He went back again to the window. The solitude of the room began to weigh on his spirits. As he looked out again at the view, there was a soft knock at the door. He hastened to open it and checked himself in the act. A doubt occurred to him. Was it the manager who had knocked? He called out, Who is there? The voice of Agnes answered him. Have you anything to tell me, Henry? He was hardly able to reply. Not just now, he said confusedly. Forgive me if I don't open the door. I will speak to you a little later. The sweet voice made itself heard again, pleading with him, piteously. Don't leave me alone, Henry. I can't go back to the happy people downstairs. How could he resist that appeal? He heard her sigh. He heard the rustling of her dress as she moved away in despair. The very thing that he had shrunk from doing but a few minutes since was the thing that he did now. He joined Agnes in the corridor. She turned as she heard him and pointed, trembling, in the direction of the closed room. "'Is it so terrible as that?' she asked faintly. He put his arm round her to support her. A thought came to him as he looked at her, waiting in doubt and fear for his reply. "'You shall know what I have discovered,' he said, "'if you will first put on your hat and cloak and come out with me.' She was naturally surprised. "'Can you tell me your object in going out?' she asked. He owned what his object was unreservedly. "'I want, before all things,' he said, "'to satisfy your mind and mine "'on the subject of Mount Barry's death. "'I am going to take you to the doctor "'who attended him in his illness "'and to the council who followed him to the grave.' "'Her eyes rested on Henry gratefully. "'Oh, how well you understand me,' she said. The manager joined them at the same moment on his way up the stairs. 
Henry gave him the key of the room, and then called to the servants in the hall to have a gondola ready at the steps. "'Are you leaving the hotel?' the manager asked. "'In search of evidence,' Henry whispered, pointing to the key. "'If the authorities want me, I shall be back in an hour.'" Chapter 25 The day had advanced to evening. Lord Mountberry and the bridal party had gone to the opera. Agnes, alone, pleading the excuse of fatigue, remained at the hotel. Having kept up appearances by accompanying his friends to the theatre, Henry Westwick slipped away after the first act and joined Agnes in the drawing-room. "'Have you thought of what I said to you earlier in the day?' he asked, taking a chair at her side. "'Do you agree with me that the one dreadful doubt which oppressed us both is at least set at rest?' Agnes shook her head sadly. "'I wish I could agree with you, Henry. I wish I could honestly say that my mind is at ease.' The answer would have discouraged most men. Henry's patience, where Agnes was concerned, was equal to any demands on it. "'If you will only look back at the events of the day,' he said, "'you must surely admit that we have not been completely baffled. "'Remember how Dr. Bruno disposed of our doubts. "'After thirty years of medical practice, "'do you think I am likely to mistake the symptoms of death by bronchitis?' If ever there was an unanswerable question, there it is. Was the council's testimony doubtful in any part of it? He called at the palace to offer his services after hearing of Lord Mountberry's death. He arrived at the time when the coffin was in the house. He himself saw the corpse placed in it and the lid screwed down. The evidence of the priest is equally beyond dispute. He remained in the room with the coffin, reciting the prayers for the dead until the funeral left the palace. "'Bear all these statements in mind, Agnes, "'and how can you deny that the question of Mountberry's death and burial "'is a question set at rest? "'We have really but one doubt left. "'We have still to ask ourselves whether the remains which I discovered "'are the remains of the lost courier or not. "'There is the case, as I understand it. "'Have I stated it fairly?' "'Agnes could not deny that he had stated it fairly.' "'Then what prevents you from experiencing the same sense of relief that I feel?' Henry asked. "'What I saw last night prevents me,' Agnes answered. "'When we spoke of the subject after our inquiries were over, "'you reproached me with taking what you called the superstitious view. "'I don't quite admit that, "'but I do acknowledge that I should find the superstitious view intelligible "'if I heard it expressed by some other person.' "'Remembering what your brother and I once were to each other in the bygone time, "'I can understand the apparition making itself visible to me "'to claim the mercy of Christian burial and the vengeance due to a crime. "'I can even perceive some faint possibility of truth "'in the explanation which you described as the mesmeric theory "'that what I saw might be the result of magnetic influence "'communicated to me as I lay between the remains "'of the murdered husband above me and the guilty wife,' "'suffering the tortures of remorse at my bedside. "'But what I do not understand is "'that I should have passed through that dreadful ordeal, "'having no previous knowledge of the murdered man in his lifetime, "'or only knowing him, "'if you suppose that I saw the apparition of Ferrari, "'through the interest which I took in his wife. "'I can't dispute your reasoning, Henry, "'but I feel in my heart of hearts that you are deceived. 
"'nothing will shake my belief "'that we are still as far from having discovered "'the dreadful truth as ever.' "'Henry made no further attempt to dispute with her. "'She had impressed him with a certain reluctant respect "'for her own opinion, in spite of himself. "'Have you thought of any better way of arriving at the truth?' he asked. "'Who is to help us? "'No doubt there is the Countess, "'who has the clue to the mystery in her own hands. "'But in the present state of her mind "'is her testimony to be trusted, "'even if she were willing to speak. "'Judging by my own experience, "'I should say decidedly not. "'You don't mean that you have seen her again?' "'Agnes eagerly interposed. "'Yes, I disturbed her once more over her endless writing.' "'and I insisted on her speaking out plainly. "'Then you told her what you found "'when you opened the hiding place.' "'Of course I did,' Henry replied. "'I said that I held her responsible for the discovery, "'though I had not mentioned her connection with it "'to the authorities as yet. "'She went on with her writing "'as if I had spoken in an unknown tongue. "'I was equally obstinate on my side. "'I told her plainly that the head "'had been placed under the care of the police.' "'and that the manager and I had signed our declarations "'and given our evidence. "'She paid not the slightest heed to me. "'By way of tempting her to speak, "'I added that the whole investigation was to be kept a secret, "'and that she might depend on my discretion. "'For the moment I thought I had succeeded. "'She looked up from her writing "'with a passing flash of curiosity and said, "'What are they going to do with it?' "'meaning, I suppose, the head. "'I answered that it was to be privately buried "'after photographs of it had been taken. "'I even went the length of communicating "'the opinion of the surgeon consulted "'that some chemical means of arresting decomposition "'had been used and had only partially succeeded. "'And I asked her point-blank if the surgeon was right. "'The trap was not a bad one, but it completely failed. "'She said in the coolest manner, "'Now you are here. I should like to consult you about my play. "'I am at a loss for some new incidents. "'Mind, there was nothing satirical in this. "'She was really eager to read her wonderful work to me, "'evidently supposing that I took a special interest in such things, "'because my brother is the manager of a theater. "'I left her, making the first excuse that occurred to me. "'So far as I am concerned, I can do nothing with her.' "'but it is possible that your influence may succeed with her again, "'as it has succeeded already. "'Will you make the attempt to satisfy your own mind? "'She is still upstairs, and I am quite ready to accompany you.' "'Agnes shuddered at the bare suggestion of another interview with the Countess. "'I can't, I daren't,' she exclaimed. "'After what has happened in that horrible room, "'she is more repellent to me than ever.' "'Don't ask me to do it, Henry. Feel my hand. "'You have turned me as cold as death only with talking of it.' "'She was not exaggerating the terror that possessed her. "'Henry hastened to change the subject. "'Let us talk of something more interesting,' he said. "'I have a question to ask you about yourself. "'Am I right in believing that the sooner you get away from Venice, "'the happier you will be?' "'Right,' she repeated excitedly, "'You are more than right. "'No words can say how I long to be away from this horrible place. "'But you know how I am situated. "'You heard what Lord Mountberry said at dinner-time. 
Suppose he has altered his plans since dinner time, Henry suggested. Agnes looked surprised. I thought he had received letters from England which obliged him to leave Venice tomorrow, she said. Quite true, Henry admitted. He had arranged to start for England tomorrow and to leave you and Lady Mountberry and the children to enjoy your holiday in Venice under my care. Circumstances have occurred, however, which have forced him to alter his plans. He must take you all back with him tomorrow, because I am not able to assume the charge of you. I am obliged to give up my holiday in Italy and return to England too. Agnes looked at him in some little perplexity. She was not quite sure whether she understood him or not. "'Are you really obliged to go back?' she asked. Henry smiled as he answered her. "'Keep the secret,' he said, "'or Mount Barry will never forgive me.' She read the rest in his face. "'Oh!' she exclaimed, blushing brightly. "'You have not given up your pleasant holiday in Italy on my account.' "'I shall go back with you to England, Agnes. "'That will be holiday enough for me.' She took his hand in an irrepressible outburst of gratitude. "'How good you are to me,' she murmured tenderly. "'What should I have done in the troubles that have come to me without your sympathy? "'I can't tell you, Henry, how I feel your kindness.' She tried impulsively to lift his hand to her lips. He gently stopped her. "'Agnes,' he said, "'are you beginning to understand how truly I love you?' The simple question found its own way to her heart. She owned the whole truth without saying a word. She looked at him and then looked away again. He drew her nearer to him. My own darling, he whispered, and kissed her. Softly, the sweet lips lingered and touched his lips in return. Then her head drooped. She put her arms round his neck and hid her face on his bosom. They spoke no more. The charmed silence had lasted but a little while when it was mercilessly broken by a knock at the door. Agnes started to her feet. She placed herself at the piano. The instrument being opposite to the door, it was impossible when she seated herself on the music stool for any person entering the room to see her face. Henry called out irritably, Come in. The door was not opened. The person on the other side of it asked a strange question. "'Is Mr. Henry Westwick alone?' "'Agnes instantly recognized the voice of the Countess. "'She hurried to a second door, "'which communicated with one of the bedrooms. "'Don't let her come near me,' she whispered nervously. "'Good night, Henry. Good night.' "'If Henry could, by an effort of will, "'have transported the Countess to the uttermost ends of the earth, "'he would have made the effort without remorse. "'As it was, he only repeated more irritably than ever,' Come in. She entered the room slowly with her everlasting manuscript in her hand. Her step was unsteady. A dark flush appeared on her face in place of its customary pallor. Her eyes were bloodshot and widely dilated. In approaching Henry, she showed a strange incapability of calculating her distances. She struck against the table near which he happened to be sitting. When she spoke, her articulation was confused and her pronunciation of some of the longer words was hardly intelligible. Most men would have suspected her of being under the influence of some intoxicating liquor. Henry took a truer view. He said as he placed a chair for her, "'Countess, I am afraid you have been working too hard. You look as if you wanted rest.' 
She put her hand to her head. My invention has gone, she said. I can't write my fourth act. It's all a blank, all a blank. Henry advised her to wait till the next day. Go to bed, he suggested, and try to sleep. She waved her hand impatiently. I must finish the play, she answered. I only want a hint from you. You must know something about plays. Your brother has got a theater. You must often have heard him talk about fourth and fifth acts. You must have seen rehearsals and all the rest of it. She abruptly thrust the manuscript into Henry's hand. I can't read it to you, she said. I feel giddy when I look at my own writing. Just run your eye over it, there's a good fellow, and give me a hint. Henry glanced at the manuscript. He happened to look at the list of the persons of the drama. As he read the list, he started and turned abruptly to the countess, intending to ask her for some explanation. The words were suspended on his lips. It was but too plainly useless to speak to her. Her head lay back on the rail of the chair. She seemed to be half asleep already. The flush on her face had deepened. She looked like a woman who was in danger of having a fit. He rang the bell and directed the man who answered it to send one of the chambermaids upstairs. His voice seemed to partially rouse the countess. She opened her eyes in a slow, drowsy way. Have you read it? she asked. It was necessary as a mere act of humanity to humor her. I will read it willingly, said Henry, if you will go upstairs to bed. You shall hear what I think of it tomorrow morning. Our heads will be clearer. We shall be better able to make the fourth act in the morning. The chambermaid came in while he was speaking. I am afraid the lady is ill, Henry whispered. Take her up to her room. The woman looked at the countess and whispered back, Shall we send for a doctor, sir? Henry advised taking her upstairs first and then asking the manager's opinion. There was great difficulty in persuading her to rise and accept the support of the chambermaid's arm. It was only by reiterated promises to read the play that night and to make the fourth act in the morning that Henry prevailed on the countess to return to her room. Left to himself, he began to feel a certain languid curiosity in relation to the manuscript. He looked over the pages, reading a line here and a line there. Suddenly, he changed color as he read, and looked up from the manuscript like a man bewildered. "'Good God, what does this mean?' he said to himself. His eyes turned nervously to the door by which Agnes had left him. She might return to the drawing-room. She might want to see what the Countess had written. He looked back again at the passage which had startled him, considered with himself for a moment, and snatching up the unfinished play, suddenly and softly left the room. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.